This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, making the world healthier and greener one day at a time. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for joining me today. The workplace has become a source of stress and burnout for so many. Employers are dealing with employees who don't have the strategies in place to cope with life's stressors, let alone work issues that may arise. So what are the long-term effects on productivity if employers don't put the health and wellness of their staff first? What are some of the ways employers can create health and teams? Joining me on the show today is workplace well-being expert and author of Workplace Wellness That Works, Laura Platinum. Thank you so much for joining me today, Laura. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. This is such an important topic. I mean, we are post-pandemic, uh, hopefully. And I feel like the workplace has changed. I hear more people complaining and employers are dealing with rising rates of burnout, high turnover and employee absenteeism. Is this due to the fact that there is a lack of health and wellness promotion in the workplace? The, the research really shows that the vast majority of employers, they're all offering wellness. But what we have all learned the hard way is that unlike the field of dreams, if you build it as in a wellness program, they, as in the people that you're trying to reach, they will not necessarily come. And even if they do come, they won't necessarily be any healthier or happier because of that program. So the real question becomes, how do we do it in a way that actually works? You say this, and it strikes me as very important because I have in the past in my career have run various health and wellness programs in different companies, in different scenarios. And you're absolutely right. Even if you offer it, they don't necessarily come and they don't always get what you want them to get out of it. Um, and I think the big question is, if we offer the right things, do you think it will change the mindset of employees using, gaining access to all the strategies that we're going to put in place? The real issue is not just changing individual mindsets, but actually changing organizational and team mindsets. And I really am seeing more and more that we have put way too much you know, belief in the capacity for the individual to improve their health and well-being. We've really leaned into the personal responsibility mantra. So it's just a matter of changing your mindset, uh, prioritizing your own health and well-being, taking responsibility for it, and then you'll be healthier and happier. What we are up against are environments and cultures that conspire against the individual being healthy. I strongly believe that we really need to shift our focus from directing these programs so much to the individual and counting on them to take responsibility and instead to focus our efforts more on the surrounding container. So that means the environment, that means the culture, that means really starting to address some root causes of issues like burnout, um, which are really more structural in nature, things like work overload, toxicity tolerated in the workplace. So for example, a study just recently came out, uh, that report from McKinsey, showing the top driver of burnout in the workplace is toxicity in the workplace. And so this is where leaders 
and managers have a very important role to play, which is they really need to be at the helm of getting workplace wellness to work. One of the big questions that I get in my own practice when I'm talking to, you know, I'm treating employees and I'm also treating employers. And one of the big questions is, is the employer really responsible for improving the health of their employees? So first of all, the short answer is yes. And I want to repeat that response. The answer is yes. We might say that the toll on our mental health is the second act of the pandemic. So all those things that we've had to do to protect our physical health during the pandemic, things like social distancing, things like taking on added uh, caretaking responsibilities, have extracted an enormous toll on our mental health. One ship, one naval ship, that is, in one week had three suicides. This happened in September of 2019. This then repeated itself on another naval ship in April of 2022. This is on the heels of the Navy having invested heavily in suicide prevention and in mental health. Those services and those resources are largely ones in which we, quote, identify the individuals who are at risk and we kind of pluck them out and then connect them with the individual resources that they need. But one of the psychiatrists who was interviewed made an excellent point, which was, why don't we instead address the environment that is driving the troops to become suicidal in the first place? And so this is a, a heartbreaking example of what happens when we focus so much at the individual and we don't look at the surrounding that they're operating within, the context within which they are operating. What I see in the field and just kind of our overall understanding of wellness is that we have really failed on that front of better addressing the context. I do agree that the responsibility is on the employer. Let's talk about what happens when the proper strategies are in place. What can we expect as employers um, and what should the employee get out of having a healthy, um, you know, health programs in the workplace? Well, when we shift from what I would characterize as the wrong approach to uh, supporting the well-being of employees when they're at work to the right one is that on a very general level, employees start to feel like their employer actually cares about them. And we shift from a sense that well-being is being done to me, and instead that well-being is being done for me and with me. I see over and over again a fundamental mismatch between the programs that are offered and this larger culture and environment. And so one of the key shifts that I encourage every organization to begin with is to shift their mindset from generating yet another program to really start to look at how can we generate a different way of doing business. In everything that we do, well-being is infused 
into life as usual when we are at work, whether it's in person or virtual. And so the subtitle of my book is actually 10 Ways to Infuse Well-Being and Vitality into Any Organization. And so the 10 steps are all built around how do we move from a program to a way of life? How do we move from yet another initiative to starting a movement of well-being? In my own practice, in my own businesses, um, we have a rule where we make a big deal out of birthdays. So, you know, we have like a cake or we make a big deal or we get balloons. We find out what the person enjoys and we kind of, you know, encourage having a little festivity around a birthday. Is that what we're talking about? Or are we diving deeper and creating something even bigger? Or is that a great place to start? I think that those kinds of extra effort, um, you know, kind of special occasions is really important and a good start. But I think that we need to kind of move beyond the special occasions to the everyday and to the regular practices. And this is where the manager has such an important role to play. So, and this is one of the reasons why I have focused my efforts so much in working with managers specifically, because they're really on the front line with their team members, more so than the senior leaders. The, the senior leaders, they set the tone, they allocate the resources, they kind of across the organization say, okay, we're going to start to really prioritize well-being as an organization. But the day in and day out is really, uh, really comes down to the manager. So it's everyday kinds of things like paying attention to everyone on the team starting to appreciate their team members, not just for what they do, but for who they are as human beings. Noticing things like, is there somebody who's feeling left out? If so, next time I'm with my team, I need to go to that person and make the added effort. It's also just having good managerial best practices like having a weekly meeting, having a, a touch point, a once a week touch point with every single team member and asking very ba basic questions like, what are you working on and how can I help? That has been shown over and over again to really make a difference uh, in the extent to which people are not only well, but that they are engaged in their work. And it's also things like fostering friendship within the work within the workplace and within the team. And I think that a lot of managers feel like, oh, that's not my job. But again, if you're a manager and you want to have a high-performing team, guess what? If your team members have not just friends, but best friends at work, they are seven times more likely to be highly engaged in their work. If you're paying attention to what their strengths are and, and giving them some tools to be able to assess what their strengths are and then giving them opportunities and really working with the team to help one another to identify what are my strengths and they get to use them every day, they're six times more likely to be highly engaged with their work. Oh, and guess what? They're going to be a lot happier as well if they're getting to use their strengths every day. And then finally, if a team, if there's a high level of trust within a team, that team is 12 times more likely to be highly engaged. Engaged. Everybody, I think, is noticing from large companies to smaller companies that they're struggling to get people back into the office. People are selecting and choosing and hoping and praying they get to work from home. Do you believe that if we were to encourage that wellness, that well-being, that being appreciated at work, it would encourage more people to get back into the office? 
I personally feel that working outside of your office, unless your job is specifically one that's working from home, but if you were to be working but in the office prior to COVID, we should be getting people back in because the social aspect of going to work every day is kind of lost. So do you think that if we start implementing various strategies, it'll encourage people to get back in? I think that you're right. I mean, one of the things that I talked about in Workplace Wellness That Works in step seven is create meaning. So as human beings, we are hardwired to seek meaning. And uh, so the more a workplace, the more a manager and a leader can really create an environment and a, and a culture in which people's deepest human needs are met, the more likely they're going to want to be there, wherever there is. Now, interestingly enough, one of those deepest core psychological needs that we all have is a need for autonomy. And that's one thing that we have gained in working from home is that we have a lot more flexibility and autonomy. And that is something that people are not wanting to give up. So if the, if the employer can show, demonstrate to the employees that their flexibility will be safeguarded and that they have some choice around how they uh, it, it come, you know, when they're at the office and when they're not, they have choice around when they work, where they work and how they work. Then I think that people may be more on board uh, to coming into the office. People have had a taste of that freedom. And um, keep in mind also that it's not just the that, you know, having this added autonomy, it's also that people aren't spending all that time on a commute. So that is it. So a lot of people have gained time that they wouldn't have had otherwise. But I just want to add one more point about this autonomy piece. You know, I like one of the things that is in every wellness program is stress management. There's been, historically, we've been talking about this forever. And again, this gets to this piece about the disconnect between the programs that are offered and the larger culture. And so I often ask managers and leaders in this Managers on the Move leadership development program that I have, and this is a program that I've delivered now to over 10,000 managers and leaders around the world, is the question, what do you think when you move up in an organization do you think that your stress levels go up or do they go down? So I'm going to pose that question to you. What do you think? Do you think your stress levels go up or do you think they go down? Well, I would say that they go up, but that's because I'm thinking more responsibility, more effort, more, you know, a lot more, you know, time on my side that I'm having to put into my career. So I would say that it would go up. And your response mirrors what the perception is. And, and frankly, what my perception on this was as well. But according to a large study uh, that came out of Harvard and Stanford, it's actually just the opposite. So yes, we have more responsibility when we move up in an organization. Yes, we have more visibility. It can feel like there's more pressure. But the key piece here is that as we move up in an organization, we have a greater sense of control over how we allocate our time over the course of the day. And 
again, that is one of the biggest drivers of stress is being micromanaged. And so if any organization wants to help their team members to feel less stressed, and again, this ties back to your original question, they really need to find ways to help people to feel like, A, they're not micromanaged, but B, that they really do have that flexibility. Because again, that sense of autonomy uh, that sense of not being what you know, not want, being told what to do every step of the way, then that you have some flexibility in how you get from point A to point B, is so hardwired in all of us. And I think we all want to create that balance. When we come back, Laura Futnam's book "Workplace Wellness That Works" and why stealth strategies should be adopted to engage employees about health. This is the Wellness Prescription on 105 Live the Region. Stay with us. Have a question for Dr. Claudia? Call us at 416-335-1059. Tweet us at 1059theregion or email us info at 1059theregion.com. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 1059 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. For the break, Laura and I were discussing how traditional approaches to workplace health and wellness programs don't necessarily work. In her book, Workplace Wellness and Work, she provides a fresh perspective on how to promote employee well-being in the workplace. So we talked a little bit about your book, Laura. Let's talk about what are some of the strategies that you would recommend implementing? There's, there's per, per, this perception that uh, to promote well-being in the workplace, it requires deep pockets. And so organizations and leaders typically look to the Googles in the world as being the, you know, bearing the gold standard around workplace wellness. And the truth of the matter is, and this is a topic that I spoke about at a recent uh, large event uh, hosted by American Express, is that it's not about the bells and whistles when it comes to wellness. It's not about the fancy platforms. It's not about having uh, the gyms. Uh, it's really about those, again, those deepest human needs and really feeling seen and, and really see, feeling cared for. And actually, um, it's a kind of the human to human stuff. And, and that's where actually the smaller organizations actually have a leg up on those larger organizations. And frankly, what I see so often in a lot of these larger organizations, particularly being here in the Bay Area, which is home to all of these uh, fancy tech companies, is some of those tech companies that have all the bells and whistles, they have some of the highest levels of stress and burnout in their um, in their employees. And um, there is just, uh, you know, the amount of toxicity that is tolerated in some of these tech companies um, is, uh, that's really what is at the root of a lot of these employees not being well. So, so let's talk about what actually does work. And, and the first step that I bring up in my book is this idea of shifting your mindset from expert to agent of change. So what is it that somebody like Oprah Winfrey does that really helps people to feel seen and really get people excited in a very different way from what an expert might do? And what experts often do is they cite statistics and they give a lot of information. But the truth of the matter is that people already know that information on a very basic level. They just don't do it. And so the real question is, 
why don't they do it? And, uh, you know, for example, we take the three basics, which are eat healthy, get active, don't smoke. Everybody knows that, right? And yet, less than 3% of Americans do those three basic things. And so we have to think more, just be more creative in how we start to more effectively address this knowing and doing gap so that we can start to narrow it. So the first is that we have to really, you know, as agents of change, we think about inspiring people through stories instead of statistics, for example, or through human to human contact or through helping people to start with what's right, help them to identify what's already going well in their lives as opposed to diagnosing everything that's wrong with them and then fixing them. I mean, what I see in so many of these programs is that they typically begin with these health risk assessments. Now, how inspiring is that to fill out a health risk assessment? Just the name alone, we're, you know, Tell us all the things that you're doing wrong. Tell us all the ways that you should feel badly about yourself. You know, you're stressed out, you're overweight, you have a high blood pressure. I mean, not only does it feel invasive, but it just makes you feel crummy. So instead, how might you instead start, help people to start with, what are the things that you're doing right? First, let's start there. And it might be, you know, I'm in a really loving relationship with my spouse. And that's a really positive place to start. And and by the way, the research shows that when it comes to longevity, the importance of having these close relationships, this idea of am I loved and am I loving well, that's actually even more important than those things like healthy eating and and being physically active. As important as those things are, relationships matter even more. So it's really starting to get at the heart of what matters most. If I were an employer and I was seeing things from the perspective of my position, so what areas in my business are not working well, what areas could be improved, should I be looking at the well-being of my staff first? Because I feel like that's an important place to start. Because if you have an unhealthy and unhappy group, then the, uh, those various departments are going to be affected. So is that a good place for me to start as an employer? It's such a good question. And it's really, <laughs> it's stating the obvious, isn't it? I mean, we are human beings after all. We're not machines. And every organization is composed of human beings. And so just on a very basic level, of course we have to start with our well-being because that is foundational to everything. But then beyond that, you give me any metric that matters to your organization whether it's safety, it's innovation, it's productivity, it's cost reduction, whatever it is. And I will show you how it connects to well-being. So for example, so many organizations are focused on attraction and retention right now in the time of the great resignation. Those employees who are thriving, as in thriving in their well-being, they are 81% less likely to leave. 
Or you talk about things like safety. Those employees who are not only following the safety protocol rules, but are also practicing well-being, they're much less likely to get injured on the job. The two go hand in hand. Or you talk about innovation. Those people who are well, they're a better team player and they're more likely to be innovative. And things like, you know, if you want to have a high-performing team, research shows that the number one factor is having a high level of so-called psychological safety where people really feel seen. So again, this is moving into the nuances of well-being, looking at well-being beyond just physical. So this is something that I talk about in my book in, in this idea of imagining what's possible. So it's not just physical, but it's also emotional well-being. It's social well-being. It's financial well-being. It's career well-being, it's community well-being, all of these things combined together is what really enables people to be their best, teams to be their best, and organizations to be their best. Laura, I can't thank you enough. I feel much more inspired as an employer, and I feel like we can all make a difference in the lives of our employees just to create a better world overall. I think that's the message is that when you're working with a good team that's strong and healthy and happy, you just create a better world in general. If anyone wants to learn more about you, maybe wants to purchase your book or, you know, reach out to you for all the services and programs you offer, how can they do that? Well, thank you so much for asking that. And and one key piece that I just wanted to pick, on, uh, pick up on, if we could, um, before I share that, is just this idea of going stealth, something that you had mentioned earlier. And this is really a key strategy that every organization can be thinking about. Interestingly enough, most of us are not actually motivated by health. So study after study shows, for example, that if you exercise to lose weight, that you're less likely to be motivated to continue doing that over time. But if you exercise for energy, or let's say it's a time for you to connect with a friend, then you're more likely to keep doing it over time. So I always encourage organizations and their leaders and managers to think about going stealth, which is look for opportunities to infuse well-being into non-wellness programs and initiatives, and then call it something else. Don't call it health. Don't call it wellness. Talk about how we're going to manage our energy, for example, or we're going to think about sustainable engagement. So I just wanted to add that really important point. Um, very counterintuitive that actually most of us really, um, we're not that motivated by health. Health and well-being is something that's off in the distance. We, you know, but what's the here and now? I want to have more energy right here, right now. So in terms of how people can follow me and, um, learn more about what I do. The, the first is that I'm very active on LinkedIn. And in fact, I have a course on LinkedIn learning called Managers as Multipliers of Wellbeing. I'm also active on Instagram and Twitter. My book uh, is available through any major distributor. You can get it on Amazon. Um, 
There's also lots of resources that are complimentary that are on the Motion Infusion website. I conduct a LinkedIn Live with experts and change agents in the field um, on a regular basis. So my most recent guest was Jen Fisher, Chief Wellness Officer at Deloitte. So you can tune into that. Um, That is either the second or the fourth uh, Wednesday of the month. And then I also um, encourage you to join the Motion Infusion um, newsletter that we send out once a month. And you can go onto the Motion Infusion website in order to access that. You are amazing. Thank you again. You could always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Machiella or my website, ClaudiaMachiella.com. That's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps you live your best life. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at healthyplanetcanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.